With no further ado, let's get ready for the message. You guys ready for the word this morning? Let's go ahead and pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Thank you, Father, for being with us this morning as we study your word. I pray that each and every one of us would have hearts ready to receive what you want us to receive this morning. Lord, when we come to church, this isn't about being entertained. This isn't about uh, even just having fellowship with the people around us. But we're here to get equipped. So this morning, I pray that we would leave equipped, Father, so that we can go out in the world and be your ambassadors, fully equipped to the work that you have sent us to do. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I'm a very clever pastor, so I've named this message the prodigal son. Anybody want to guess what it's about? (laughs) In Luke chapter 15, Jesus actually shares with us three parables. And these parables are in response to the Pharisees complaining and disapproving of Jesus' interaction with sinners. If you read in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, it says, The Pharisees and their scribes, they grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I don't know about you guys, but I giggle inside every time I read that. They really hated the tax collectors. Like, they're listed as like, uh, they're sinners, and then... Worse than them are the tax collectors. You eat with the tax collectors and sinners. Luke 7, 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So in response to this attitude that he's getting from the religious leaders of the time, Jesus begins to share some parables, trying to demonstrate to them that one, God loves these sinners, and that he is filled with joy at the repentance of even one sinner. The first parable in this chapter, you guys are probably familiar with it, is the parable of the lost sheep, right? You know, that's where where the shepherd has a hundred sheep, one gets lost, and he leaves the ninety-nine, to go hunt down this one lost sheep. He goes searching for the one. It's this beautiful reminder that each and every one of us is worth it for Jesus to go looking for. Mm. You know, this is where, where, have you ever heard of anybody say that if you were the only one to get saved, Jesus would have still went to the cross for you? Ever heard that expression? This is why. He would, he would have went just for you. The second parable is the woman who loses one of her coins. She's got ten silver coins. She loses one. And instead of going, you know what? I still got nine more. I'm good to go. She tears the house apart looking for this lost coin. And when she finds it, not only does she rejoice, but she calls all of her friends over to rejoice with her. Once again, it's this beautiful picture of God's love for us, that he's out there searching even for the one loss. And when, he f- when we're found, there's rejoicing. But today I want to focus on the last parable. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And most of us have heard this, this, this parable. It's, it's quite famous. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard of it, you've probably read it. And here's the thing. Prodigal just means wasteful. 
So this story is actually about the wasteful son. And now if you're one of the people that read it before, and you go, oh, that makes sense. Because I didn't know what prodigal meant for the longest time. Until yesterday I looked it up. <laughs> but it's, it's, the, it's the story of the wasteful son. But you know, there was one commenta- commentator that I was reading, and he said, you know, this could be more aptly named, not the parable of the, the prodigal son, but the parable of the loving father. Amen. And it carries a lot of the same lessons as the other two parables. And as we study it, study it today, I want you to think about this as we're going through it. One is how it shows God's overwhelming love for each and every one of us. It demonstrates God's mercy for us. And it shows God's joy when we turn home. Amen? So let's get started. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 12, it says, And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So Jesus begins laying the, 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 the framework, the groundwork for us to go ahead and understand this parable that he's about to share. And uh, in Deuteronomy 21.17, it says this, the firstborn would receive a double portion of the inheritance. This was, this was Jewish law. This is how it worked. The firstborn in a family is going to receive a double portion of the inheritance over the rest of the children. In this case, there's only two sons. So if we do some simple math, we carry the one, the older son is going to get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son would receive one-third. Now, this is one-third of everything that the father had. One-third of the entire inheritance is going to this young son. Now, usually, this inheritance is passed on at the death of the father. But it wasn't unheard of that the father might distribute the inheritance earlier. So this isn't something that's unheard of. Typically, when this would happen would be because the father was no longer able to manage the, the inheritance anymore, right? So if they had land and, and livestock and fields and all that stuff, the father may be too old to continue the day-to-day operation. So he passes on the inheritance early so that they could take over what's going on. So it's not completely unheard of for the inheritance to be given early. Typically, it would be given to be managed, not to be squandered, as we're going to see here shortly. But what's unusual about this particular case is it's the younger son who is pushing to receive his inheritance. Ultimately, it's, it's, it's uh, showing a complete disregard for his father's authority. He's basically telling him, Father, you give it. I don't care what you want. I don't care what you're doing. You need to give it to me right now. The son's basically acting in complete selfishness, declaring that he didn't need the father or the family or anything else for that matter. He just needs his money and he would be okay. And he essentially looked his father in the eye and said, I wish you were dead. Because that's the way you'd usually receive the inheritance. And it's easy for us to be appalled by this. But how many of us have taken up this same attitude, especially when it comes to God. You see, we want his blessing, but we don't want to be obedient. We want all the good stuff, but we don't want to deal with any kind of authority, obedience. We want to be able to have our cake and eat it too, if you will. 
we begin to treat God like some sort of wish maker or a holy slot machine. We want the good stuff. We don't want to stick around. So one of the things I always think about when I read these things is, is really begin to look at yourself when you read this. So that's what it's here for, right? Just to help teach us. It's so easy for us to look at him and go, stupid kid. Why would you do anything like that? I mean, that's just ridiculous. But if you think about it, we've all done it ourselves. Amen? To continue on in verse 13, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. (laughs) So after the son receives his inheritance, one-third of everything the father had, he promptly packs up and takes off. Now this really kind of appears to be the plan from the start, right? Because... He only took long enough to pack everything up and take out. That was his plan. He didn't want to be there. He wanted to take off. And we don't have the whole picture of this young man's life. But I think we can make some educated guesses to why he was leaving so quickly. And when I was writing this, these educated guesses came from my experience in life and experience of the the people that I know. And I would guess that he was tired of living under his father's rule and authority. He wanted his own life. He wanted to be able to do what he wanted. He didn't want the responsibility of taking care of everything that he needed to take care of. And it's not really an uncommon phenomenon, I don't think, because we see it all around us. I have seen so many young men and women that want nothing more than to get out of their parents' house. They just want out. They don't like the rules of the house. They don't like the inherent responsibility that comes along with living in a house. They feel like they're being oppressed and limited. So they want out as fast as they can. And it doesn't take long, usually just a few years, before most young men and women come to realize that, you know what, it actually wasn't that bad at home. For me... When I look back at my life, my mom got remarried when I was 12 or 13. And uh, we, my sister and I, we kind of run roughshod all over my mom. She was a single mom. She was working all the time. And, and uh, if you've known any single moms or if you've been one, you know that sometimes it's just easier to kind of look the other way. And... Uh, so we, we did. We ran roughshod all over my mom, and then she got married to this to this man, and and uh, he came in, and and man, all of a sudden I was getting in trouble all the time. See, it turns out he had did all the stuff that I was trying to do, and I was getting caught left and right. I was, I mean, I remember one time when I was in high school, I spent, I think maybe I had one week out of the entire year that I wasn't grounded. And it's not that they were being harsh. I was just an idiot. <laughs> I didn't think so at the time. Looking back now, I can tell that that was true. And I was so mad at him. And, and you know, there were times that, that, that I hated him for what he was doing. Like, why? You know, and, and I had that same idea, right? Why was he getting me in trouble, oblivious that it was my stupidity, that I was, I was the one doing the things? He was just enforcing the consequences. 
But as I look back now, even though in the midst of it, I was so angry and so upset, I look back now and I recognize that he saved me. I, I would likely be in dead or in, or in dead. I would likely be dead or in jail yeah, if he wasn't there. Because all the stupid stuff I was doing, he kept pulling me out. Being grounded to my house for that that year was probably the best thing that could have happened to me. It kept me out of trouble. I looked back and I realized that he wasn't being mean. He wasn't being cruel. He was doing what was best for me. But I imagine this young man in the parable, he's doing the same thing. He doesn't understand why he's being oppressed or told to live a certain way or do these things. He didn't like the responsibility. So I imagine... He's running for the very same reason. And grabbing his inheritance early was his ticket out. How many of us at one time or another ran from God because we feel like his rule is oppressive? Particularly for people before I was saved. You know, and, and I've known so many people that aren't saved that's had the same idea that, that God's just out to steal your fun. You know, he's just waiting for you to mess up so he can smack you across the legs with a big stick. The reality is, is that everything that God asks us to do is for our own good. So many young people want to go out and get drunk. They don't realize how much harm that can cause, either from the alcohol or from your stupidity while you're on alcohol. They want to be able to sleep around with any person that they can. And they don't realize that when they do that, it's not just a simple action, but there is something spiritual about that bond. And every time that you split it apart, you're ripping that apart. You're causing damage. God tells us to do these things not because he wants our life to be, to be miserable and boring, but because he's trying to protect us. He's trying to keep us safe. So I recognize when I look at this man, it's easy to point out how silly he's being, but then I realize that I've been just as silly in my own life. And as we continue on in verses 14 through 16, it says, When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So it turns out that even though the son thought he had it all figured out, he didn't. Anybody here can resemble that remark? <laughs> he quickly squandered everything that he had been given. And then all of a sudden, things get even worse because now there's a famine in the land. You see, he was unable to buy food because he had spent everything that he had so he had to go find work and all that was available was this horrible job and you have to understand you're like well i mean feeding pigs isn't ideal but i could think of stuff that's worse but you also got to imagine this is a young jewish man jewish men wouldn't even touch pigs for fear of becoming unclean you know pigs weren't 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 uh, uh, part of the deal as a Jew. They were one of the unclean animals. So imagine how low this young man had to have been 
to actually go work and feed these unclean animals. This was a huge bow, and it would have been a huge blow, and it would have been humiliating to him. And as he fed these pigs, their scraps, he longed for even that. But because they were in a famine, even scraps weren't being shared with him. Nobody had anything to give. He couldn't even successfully beg to survive because there was nothing. He was neglected, considered insignificant in this land that he's living in, and he's sinking lower than he could have ever imagined possible, something I bet he never imagined when he asked his dad for that inheritance. But then in verse 17 through 19, it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So like I said, he's been laid bare, laid lower than he's ever been before. And he begins to reason with himself. You know what? Maybe I could go back home. I realize I screwed up. And the truth is, is, is I know there's no way my, God, my dad's going to accept me back into the family, but maybe I can go and he could just treat me as a hired servant, as one of his slaves. And he remembered that his father's servants were always well taken care of and they had enough food. So he was like, you know what? I may not be able to, to join the family again, but at least I can be one of his, his servants and at least get fed. And he recognized that he screwed up. He, he understood. He's like, I'm going to have to go to my father and say, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He recognized that he had messed up. He was willing to become a slave to his father to survive. And that's the thing about being brought to your knees. Understanding that you are powerless in your own strength. And it usually punches through that stubbornness and pride that we all have. I imagine he had to stoop so low because his pride wouldn't let him go to his father sooner. But now he's been beat down, his pride's crushed, his stubbornness is crushed, and he finally looks to someone else for help. And I hate that for so many of us, we have to be brought this low before we finally cry out to God. But it happens to so many of us. Before I finally, uh, re- I had always been a Christian uh, since I was young. But it took till my, my life fell apart. I found out that, that my wife was getting ready to leave me. We had just filed for bankruptcy. Nothing was going right. Everything was going wrong. My life was a mess. And that's when, and, and really I got to that point because I didn't realize that God had been with me the whole time. And, and I kept resisting and kept being stubborn, kept thinking I was doing it on my own. And I really feel like God said, all right, you want to see what that looks like? And he just stepped back. And wouldn't you know, it wasn't me that entire time. And my world collapsed. It fell apart. 
And I finally recognized that I couldn't do it on her own. And, and, and it wasn't an aha moment like this. It was, it was more of a, a transition over time. But that's when I finally came to realize that it had nothing to do with me and I needed to go to him. And I thank God that he welcomed me back in, much like this prodigal son, as we're going to see as the story unfolds. And my, 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 my life is stronger than it's ever been. He, 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 he hired me on, if you will, to pastor, to lead others. And uh, if you knew me before, you, you realize that was, that was a dumb idea. <laughs> but uh, God, is, God is, has grace and he has mercy and, and he's been, walked with me the whole time. And uh, uh, my marriage is stronger than it's ever been before. And, and I, would, I would genuinely argue that, that my marriage is stronger than anybody's I've ever met before. Not because I'm special, but because we both have our eyes on Him. By the way, that's the key. If you want to have a strong marriage, put your eyes on God. Financially, we're doing better than we've ever done before. Because I stopped trying to do everything on my own. I finally got knocked down this low when I realized that I couldn't do it on my own. I needed to, you know what? I, it's so frustrating that we have to be knocked low like that. You know, it's uh, so often I try to, to, to tell people before they get to that point. And so often it's in vain. And I don't know what it is about us that makes us have to get to that point. It would be so much easier if we would just turn to him first instead of waiting till we're here. But as much as I don't like it, our stubbornness and our pride often makes it a requirement. In verse 20, it says, He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Here's the thing. By formulating this plan about how he was going to go to his father and tell him that I've sinned against you, that was good. That, he should have done that. But then he had this idea that he was no longer worthy to be his son. He was no longer worthy to be part of the family. And by by formulating this plan to come and, and fall at his father's feet and beg to become one of his servants, he, he demonstrated a reality that he didn't understand who his father was. He thought when he returned home that his father would reject him, that his father would be upset, that he would push him away. He thought that when he came home, there was no option but falling at his feet. And the best position he could hope for was one as a slave. But we begin to see a different story here. That's what the, the son thought would happen. But the father didn't ignore him. He didn't push him away. He didn't even wait for a son to make it all the way to him. And he began running towards his son. He ran to him and he embraced him. You see, the father had done all he could do before. He couldn't force his son to come home. You ever wonder what the difference was between the other two parables and this one? The other, the other two parables were about things. But this one's about a human. You see, you can go out and, and hunt for a coin and pick it up and pull it home. You can go out and hunt for a sheep and pull it home. But with people, you can't force them to come home. So the father did all he could. He couldn't force his son to come home. However, he was always there patiently waiting. 
And as soon as he saw him coming, the father ran to him and embraced him. I see, and this misunderstanding of the father is all too common in our world today. So many people see God as vindictive or punishing. They see him as petty and cruel. But it's only because they don't really know him. He loves them. And he willingly gave up everything for them. And he wants nothing but the best for them. Nothing but the best for us. Amen? And in verse 21 through 24, it says, And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring on his, on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. So he starts out once again. He's probably confused. Sees his father running to him. But he still doesn't understand. He's still waiting for the other foot to drop. And he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven, heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's getting ready to lay out his case to be a slave and his father doesn't have any of it. Instead, he says, you know what? Bring out the robe. Bring out the, the ring. Put shoes on his feet. Let's celebrate that he's home. He thought his father would reject him, but he got something completely different. The father didn't reject him or push him away. And it's, it's, it's amazing. The father didn't respond anything like this young man thought. His son was dead, but now was alive. That's all he cared about. His son was lost, and he now was found. That's all he cared about. There was no accusations made. There was no reparations required. The father willingly absorbed the loss to have his son back. The same thing is true for us. The truth is, is that, that when, when you get saved, you have this, that's part of being saved is repentance. It's part of understanding that, that you need a savior. There's nothing you can do to make it up. And you have a payment that can't be paid. But if you'll turn to the Father, He doesn't reject you. He doesn't punish you. He sent Jesus to absorb the loss so that you would be welcomed in with open arms. And as we've seen from the other ones, and as we even see here, as they begin to celebrate. You see, Jesus is telling these stories not just so that we know about the stories, it's so that we can understand the Father, that we can understand the kingdom of heaven. And we need to understand that when we come home, there is celebration because he's just happy for us to be home. Then we get to learn another lesson here. In Luke 15, 25 through 27, we get to see the other side of the story. We just looked at the younger son, but now we're going to see how the older son reacts to this. Luke 15, 25 through 27 says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him, him back safe and sound. 
This son has remained with the father the entire time. He has done his duty. He has been obedient to his father. He's done what he's asked. He didn't run off. He acted responsibly. He was where he was supposed to be with the father, doing the things that he was supposed to do. And here we see him out in the field. He was probably out there working, doing what he was supposed to be doing. So when, when the brother showed up and he finally comes in from the field, he hears the music, he hears the celebration, and he doesn't even know what's going on because he was out there doing what he was supposed to be doing. And when he asks, he gets a straightforward answer. His brother had come home. And as we continue on, we, we see how he responds to this in verse 25 through 27, or sorry, uh, verse 28 through 32, it says, But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes and killed the fat, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So we finish up this parable here. We get to see now the brother's reaction to finding out what had happened. And the first thing we notice is this young man became offended. Why should his brother be honored when he squandered everything? I mean, he had been the one that stayed home. He's the one that honored his father. He's the one who remained loyal. He's the one that kept working faithfully. He was upset because his brother was getting something that he thought he deserved. It's like the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Do you remember that parable? So this one, the, the, the owner of the vineyard needs some workers. So he goes out and sees a group of men not working. It's the beginning of the day. He says, hey, I'll give you a day's wages to come work in my vineyard. A few hours later, comes up against another group of men and says, hey, why aren't you working yet? I'll tell you what, go out and work in the field and I'll pay you to work. A few hours later, comes up to another group of men. They're still not working. It's getting close to afternoon now. And he says, you know, why aren't you guys working yet? So he says, listen, I'll pay you. Go out in my field and work. And then he comes more even closer. A few more hours later, it's getting closer to the end of the day. There's probably only a few hours of, of work left. And he says, you know what? You guys aren't working yet? Go in my field and work. That was the, uh, the, the, the New Wayne edition translation of what happened there. And uh, he, uh, at the end of all of this, at the end of the day, the work is done. It's time for the laborers to go home. And he walks up to the workers and he starts with those who had only worked a few hours. And he paid them a full day's wage for the few hours that he worked. And this got the other guys excited. They're like, man, if you only worked a few hours, I worked way more than that. I'm going to get a lot more. But then he goes to the next group and he pays them a day's wages. And then he goes to the next trip, and he only pays them a day's wage. And he goes to the next trip, and he only paid them a day's wages. The thing is, is that they received what they were, they were upset. They thought they were going to get more, but he's like, why are you upset? I'm paying you what we agreed to. Why are you upset? The reality is that they received what they were promised. 
And the owner is entitled to spend his money however he wants. If he wants to give those guys at the end a full day's wage for a couple hours, that's his right. And it didn't impact the people that started at all. They got exactly what they, they agreed to. They got what they thought they were going to get. And the same is true for these two sons. The father is permitted to spend what is his and distribute it however he sees fit. The older son, and listen to this, the older son wasn't receiving less because the other son was getting something else. And that's somehow what he had in his head. He even says, just listen, I, I never got any of this stuff. Somehow he thought he was receiving less than what was given to his brother. In addition to this, he had fallen into a trap thinking that somebody else was getting what he had earned. He had earned this. Why is this person getting this? Completely forgetting that everything that he had was because the father gave it to him. And then he also misunderstands the father. He, f he accused the father of not giving him to him even though he was loyal and he was faithful and the other son was so wasteful and squandered everything. This ungrateful brother, why are you giving to him and not to me? So the father responds, listen, what I'm giving your brother has always been yours. The truth is nothing has been held back from you. It was always yours. You were right here in the midst of it. And I think as Christians, we can easily fall into this trap as well. We see another Christian that might be getting blessed more than us, or at least in our own mind, that's what we think. And it's easy to start comparing yourself to them, especially if you've been serving the Lord a long time. And you wonder, why are they getting something that I've not? I've been faithful this whole time. You see, some of you are reading this story going, why would that kid act that way? But now you're like, oh, shoot. I've been acting that way. We can easily fall into this trap. What about this one? What if somebody gets saved on their deathbed? They never lived their life for God in the last moments. They gave their life to Christ and they get saved. We had to serve our entire lives, or a lot of it, for us to receive the same thing that this person is going to receive on their deathbed. They get to slip into heaven in the last moment. Would that bother you? Some of you guys are going, nope, that wouldn't bother me at all. I think it's amazing someone got saved in the last moment. I'm happy for him. What if it was Hitler? What if Hitler got saved in the last moment on his deathbed? If you got to heaven and you saw Hitler there, would that offend you? That's the same attitude. It's not our choice who gets to get it. We're not the arbitrator, the arbiter of, of, of who gets into heaven. It's God. And that's what he says the requirement is. As we read this parable, I think we can all learn something, whether you're saved, whether you're backslidden, or whether you're serving God with everything that you have. If you aren't saved or you've, you've walked away for some time, know that God is waiting for you with open arms. He's not holding anything against you. He's just waiting for you to come home, regardless of your failures and your shortcomings. And I pray that if you're 
one of those camps, whether you're in this room or you're listening online, I pray that you don't have to hit rock bottom before you come home. And if you are saved, make sure you're rejoicing when somebody else gets brought into the family, regardless of where they are, what they've done. Like I said, we're not the arbiter of who gets saved. It's open to all, regardless of their past, as long as they put their trust in the one who gave everything for them. Amen? Amen. Well, I hope this helped you work your way through this parable and you learned something. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.